I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Spoiler warning time. In this episode, we discuss Goodfellas, Mean Streets, The Godfather, The Godfather 2, The Untouchables, The Sopranos, The Bob Newhart Show, Mad About You, Three's a Crowd, Bing John Malkovich, The Haunting of Hill House, American Horror Story Murder House, The Matrix, The Truman Show, and Vanilla Sky. You've been warned. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think, Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. So this week, our episode is on gangster films. Last week, I was a little cryptic about what we were going to end up doing this week because uh, I had not yet confirmed with our guest uh. that this was the episode that, that he would be able to do that this, this week, mm-hmm. uh, what with grading and everything going on at the end of the semester and Christmas coming up. I, I thought you were just trying to create some sort of mystery and intrigue around the oh, show. Oh, sure. That's yeah. totally what I was doing. All right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so uh, lots of great things about this genre. What are your? You've done a lot of work on gangster, uh, on the gangster genre in general. You have a book on the Sopranos and philosophy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what elements of the genre are interesting to you? I think the the sort of philosophical elements might be distinct from what attracts me to the genre. Although I find those things interesting. What do you mean? As well. Um, so. Um, I've always liked the genre, you know, for considerably longer than, than I've been interested in philosophy. Um, I like the early forms of it. I, I think I grew up watching, you know, crime shows, Jimmy Cagney type things, you know, you dirty rat sort of um, stuff on late night TV. Um, and so it, I, I find them fun. I don't generally like action films. Yeah, me neither. But <clears throat> if it's a, a gangster thing, then, then I can get behind that. Um, you know, for a long time I've maintained that, that my very favorite movies ever are Godfather 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. I mean, That's there's something just about a good crime story, um, especially if it's a, a mafia story that I get sucked into. That's sort of very interesting. Um, so the philosophical side of it for me comes a little bit later. Um, but as I started, um, you know, working on philosophy and pop culture, right, again, very early on because the Sopranos book was, was my first endeavor, um, in this field, I started noticing certain things that, that I find compelling about the genre. So that, that sounds very vague. Maybe more specifically, um, it lends itself to a lot of philosophical things going on simultaneously, right? So you, you, you take a you know, good story like The Godfather, and you've got all this kind of family relations stuff, right? There's, there's ethics, and there's codes of ethics, which are interesting to analyze, right? They, 
the the you know the the ethics of mobsters on, honor among thieves yeah yeah and yeah. It, but it, but but they're they're strong codes that they adhere to um, so it's not um, you know you've got a bunch of consequentialists or virtue theorists or deontologists right this, this is just some sort of well entrenched well developed code of ethics so you you've got these these people that you know at least in their own minds are sort of very ethical people doing these kind of very bad things right mm-hmm. so there's this Interesting juxtaposition. And then it, it branches out because of the nature of the families and their interrelations that you, you get kind of a lot of um, social ethics, right? Um, political philosophy manifests itself, um, especially in the third Godfather movie, you know, where they're, they're controlling um, the, the Pope. But that, that one's sort of far-fetched. But just the, the way the groups interact, Right. It, it, um, we talked in an earlier episode about the social contract and that sort of thing. Right. You've got these little societies just made up of groups of criminals right, with their, all their structures from the people on the streets that do the crimes to the people that make decisions um, engaging in some sort of social contract with mm-hmm. one another. Mm-hmm. And so that that winds up being pretty fascinating. And there are things that are that are common to, you know, most or all of the, the gangster shows that really explore these things. Um, but there's there's also sort of nuance and differences and, and all of that. So, you know, in addition to the sort of political stuff and the ethical stuff, it gets very interesting. Um, <clears throat> in the Sopranos book I did, um, I don't want to talk about the Sopranos too much because we've got plenty of that coming up later. Um, Mike Gettings wrote a really interesting paper on speech act theory, right? There's, there's all this kind of philosophy of language stuff um, around mob families. Um mm-hmm. And then, in a lot of cases, because it's part of our, our history, there's there's stuff that I find sort of just historically very interesting, right? You get a good, like something like The Untouchables, you know, an Al Capone story, or, um, you know, Elliot Ness, um, where you're looking at, you know, at, at maybe fictionalized versions of historical events. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's that's pretty fun as well. I think it's interesting that in these in this genre we're encouraged to and we readily play along with uh, treating the character that is clearly a bad character as the protagonist, mm-hmm. right? So uh, we're rooting for the Godfather. Uh, we think it's awesome when there's a horse's head in somebody's bed, like, ha, oh, mm-hmm. he really showed him, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> this isn't the kind of behavior we're typically encouraged to engage in, uh, but we do it a lot in pop culture. Uh, I was just thinking about how in, in when we're talking about real gangsters, uh, maybe gangster movies encourage us to mythologize these kinds of people. I mean, when you, when there's a place near us, um, 20 on 25th street, uh, two bit cafe, right. Mm-hmm. Where it's f- famously Al Capone used to hang out. And I, I mean, I think everybody's like, Whoa, Al Capone, you know, but I think people's response to say like Whitey Bulger is different. Mm-hmm. So Whitey Bulger was arrested and I want to say 2013 or something like that, just after a long life of crime. Mm-hmm. And he recently, just, I think earlier this year, got murdered in prison. Right, right. And, you know, it's not like people are, well, maybe they are, I don't know, but mourning Whitey Bulger. They're sort of like, what a piece of crap he got, what he deserved. So mm-hmm. the cl- more, the more, the closer we are to the actual manifestation of 
a gangster, right. the less we like it. We need a little room. Right. Well, <laughs> I mean, people think Genghis Khan's really cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. It was sufficiently mm-hmm. far back Removed, in, yes. in time. Yeah. Not yeah. too soon. Yeah. So uh, some of the stuff that we have been talking about so far overlaps a little bit with what our guest is going to talk about today. So let's get right to that. Nice. All right. We're happy to be sitting down with Dr. Dan Wack. Dan received his PhD from the University of Chicago in 2009 and teaches philosophy at Utah State University. Thanks for uh, being here today, Dan. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you with us. So Dan is an expert in gangster film. Uh, the extent to which one can be. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about how you became interested in this subject? Uh, well, I was was interested in writing a dissertation on um, the concept of artistic medium. And my original idea was to write about a work of art that was on television, a work of art on television. That was the original idea for the dissertation. So not a particular one, but just an idea that, to do that, yeah, so that focus to, on television. To, to focus on okay. television, and it seemed to me to be interesting to try and think about, and I'm still very interested in this, in the, the way in which um, I think there, in analytic philosophy approaches to philosophy of art, there tends to be a real focus on fine visual arts as the kind of centerpiece. And they often take um, avant-garde art of various kinds as the kind of central thing that they want to be able to theorize. And it seemed to me that that was distortive in different ways and that it would be interesting to think about um, the relation between uh, work of art and its medium when you were thinking about popular art. And I, so, and it seemed to me that um, you know this was ninety nine two thousand when I was sort of thinking about this, and um, people still were not really talking about television seriously in academics, at least in the academic circles I was running in <laughs> at that point. And so it seemed to me to be exciting to do it that way. So that was the original idea. And then um, my brother, Kevin, who um, has been a real sort of uh, ally of mine culturally over the years, uh, he and I had a a thing for years and years where we would call each other up. We didn't live in the same town. We would call each other up and tell each other what we thought the funniest show on TV was Mm -hmm. currently as kind of like (laughs) recommendations and are you staying sort of on top of things. So let me interrupt you just yeah. real quick. So that was about 2000? It was 99, probably. 99? Maybe, yeah, I think it was 99. So Seinfeld had already ended. Seinfeld had ended. What was the funniest thing on TV Well, this then? is the thing. So my brother called me. He had been working um, at a job in D.C. where they had given him an apartment that had cable in it with HBO. Wow. So he called me nice. up and he said, uh, the Sopranos is the funniest show on TV. Oh my! Wow! <laughs> this is the first season of The Sopranos. It is funny. It is I'm, very I'm, funny. I'm, and, I like the insight. Um, and it was, it, it, well, it, it was the highest recommendation I could get. Basically, it was from my brother, and in this kind of 
we were big Larry Sanders show fans. We had been huge fans of the original Letterman show. Mm-hmm. And um, we were at that point big Conan O'Brien fans, too. Um, and Mr. Show. And so, the, but, so anyway, as a recommendation, it made me sit up and pay attention. And, um, and then... I was in graduate school, I didn't have access to HBO, so I had to wait till it came out on DVD that first season. And then, as soon as I saw it, it f- I realized it fit exactly with what I was interested to do with the medium stuff. Because it was... <clears throat> the question of describing it was, here's something which is clearly inheriting uh, the genre mm-hmm. of gangster movies, but it's a television show. So you're immediately forced in describing how it's a gangster movie, you're forced to describe how the medium stuff is working. That, that was so, so it, it, the original uh, sort of thing for me was not, I, I mean, I loved gangster movies. I was a huge Scorsese fan, and Goodfellas had been like really important to me. But, uh, it, you know, it was very. <laughs> It, it was it was kind of like I, I was like oh this fits perfectly with the thing that I was already thinking of doing. The other option that I had had was The Simpsons. Uh, this was still in the nineties before The Simpsons had fully turned. But uh, <laughs> all, all my friends at that point were loving South Park more than anything, but I wasn't quite sold. Yeah, the, the, well, I I I'm, I may have been with you. I I loved the South Park movie, and then the episodes, those early season episodes, mm-hmm. some of which are great and some of which didn't click for me. So, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, I'm trying to think what else in 99 would have been like the funniest show um, contenders. The UCB show, the Upright Citizens Brigade show was oh, yeah, on. Yeah. Uh, and... Um, you mentioned Mr. Show. That was Bob Odenkirk, right? And, yeah, um, and David Cross. David Cross, yeah. And that had probably just been canceled the year before, maybe? Or maybe the, maybe it was in its final year around that time. Um, but then... And then, of course, the thing that happened was that The Sopranos changed the way in which uh, television was made in the United States. So then once that happened, I mean, once I decided on The Sopranos, then I never looked back. It was very, because the thing that they, they did on that show, which was, had not been done on US TV uh, systematically up until that point, was they made the season a unit of intelligibility. <coughs> and, oh, um, right. Okay, interesting. And it was... You know, you watched the first season, and the the thought was, uh, what 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 do you do? They did it. It's done. Yeah, yeah. Right. And and the original idea for The Sopranos, you know, David Chase supposedly wrote it as a movie script, mm-hmm. and where the the pitch for the movie was. Uh, <clears throat> This gangster goes into therapy and realizes in therapy that his mom actually is trying to kill him. Mm-hmm. Right? It's a joke, right, about therapy. Um, and, th- and then he hates his mom, right? There's a great sort of epiphany there where he goes from this, no, I'm a good son, to 
I've always hated her kind of. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they just took what was originally scripted as a two-hour movie, and he broke it down into 13 hours. And, um, and then immediately after that, you had Deadwood and The Wire, and then a whole bunch of shows started doing that, where the, where the season became the unit of intelligibility, is how I think of it, rather than just the episode. So we just say that sort of ushers in the golden age of yeah. television that it's, led to the Mad Men's and Breaking Bad's and exactly. I mean, it's the it's the model for binging generally. Yeah, is that you watch the season at a time and and now I mean Netflix is it's Netflix and all the streaming services um, they've amped it up because you get it all at once so you go through um, in that way, but. Um, I, you know, when I, I originally watched The Sopranos when they released it on DVD, and I was binging it in that way, where mm-hmm. I was doing it, I watched them so much, I, and I would do it, like, in various kinds of rhythms, but um, it was, oh, you could already start doing it then, and, yeah. and the, uh, the thing that The Sopranos made, they were really good about making each episode standalone thematically, but also fit into the overall arc of the season in a way that, um, you know, I think a lot of contemporary shows that are kind of built to binge, they end up just kind of doing a season-long story and if you're, if you're watching it one after the other after the other, it just kind of all blends together and you can't really remember, like, <clears throat> what a particular... You know, it's like a rare episode of even Game of Thrones, for example. Like, um, you remember, like, the Red Wedding episode. There's, like, a couple episodes that you specifically remember. Mm-hmm. But otherwise, you just remember story arcs and mm-hmm. characters and what happened to them over the course of a season. And, um, <clears throat> but The Sopranos, it was always... There was an ongoing set of stories for the season, but then also these kinds of like little jewels of stories for the episode that were thematically connected and then would build together. So, for example, you have the episode where Melfi gets assaulted, and, yes. and a good portion of the episode's about that. And then that's the, right. The episode this was occurred in more than one season, but Janice reappears, and then there's a, a thing about that. And, or you'd have an episode, you'd have a Polly Walnuts episode. Yeah. In yeah. which there would be, a, you know, a story about um, Polly's insecurities with respect to Tony's love and attention. Mm-hmm. And um, part of what you would see is the way in which Tony was ignoring and not paying attention to this story at all. And it was consuming Polly. And, yeah. and, and that... You know, maybe something important having with Tony was happening in the background, and not. And, and, and so it would be thematized kind of all the way through the episode in different right, ways. Right. Uh, or there, you know, there would be um, the the real classic early the first season stories. Uh, Tony takes Meadow to um, college on a college tour. Oh yeah, and right. He, he runs into an. Uh, a 
rat, uh, somebody who is like um, given state's evidence for the feds against the New Jersey mob, who's changed his name and gone into hiding in Maine. Mm-hmm. And this from I remember this. This is a, from a few years, maybe four or five years earlier. But yes, Tony's got this obligation at that point. Oh, you see the guy that you know there is no statute of limitations. Well, yes, exactly. And and Tony, and it really was the the spoiler alert for a we, year we old do, show. We do a spoiler alert at the. Oh, um, great. The beginning of every episode, um, but I've got the Sopranos on my list of things that um, the the spoiler shelf life never right. um, comes to fruition. They don't expire. It's yes. too great. So uh, the um, it's the first episode. It's like the fourth episode of the season, and um, we it's the first time you see him kill somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, and he's doing it while his daughter is in uh, meeting with the admissions officer at Bowdoin or thing. I, I can't remember. Maybe at Bates. I can't remember which mm-hmm. main college it is. Um, but uh, and yeah, you see his sense of obligation, but also the way in which and part of what's so interesting about that show is the way in which he's lying to himself about what he's doing and why and what... The way in which he he needs to do this, um, he has a kind of obligation, he's good at it, there's a kind of pleasure Mm -hmm. that he feels in doing it, um, a pleasure that he feels in lying to Meadow afterwards that you can track. it's, It's a super interesting episode. And so that's the one. That's the main plot. And so the Carmela story, Tony's wife invites over um, the priest, the parish priest, for dinner, and there's a kind of back and forth about whether she's going to have an affair with him or not. Is he hitting on her or not? They're watching movies together, um, and there's a whole kind of question there running through about desire who's desiring who where what where the pleasures are that are happening that I think the more you think about that episode the more you the question of who's doing what they want who's not doing what they want what are the obligations where are the pleasures lining up it becomes incredibly rich mm-hmm. even though you only spend maybe maybe like a less than a quarter of the episode on the Carmela story. It mm-hmm. works in this way where it's, you know, kind of opening up these facets of the Tony story in that way too. And so The Sopranos was great at that. Every episode, I felt like, especially early on, they were doing that, where they had, they had thought through not just what was happening over the course of the season, but they'd broken it down in a way where... They could think through what was going to happen in an A story, a B story, and a C story, and have them work together thematically, where they would stand alone, and you mm-hmm. could, you would remember them like um, Pine Barrens, and um, <coughs> you know, there's yeah, I could go on, but so I wanted to ask you, you as you dove into this project, you uh, became interested in the history of gangster films. Yes. Uh, and I identified some different genres. Uh, could you tell us about that? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, all of my approach generally to this was um, heavily indebted to Stanley Cavell's work on genre. I, mm. I kind of thought of what I was doing is taking Cavell's insights and thinking about movie genre and trying to press it forward in a, two directions. One, in thinking about medium and how to think of how the concept of medium worked if you were taking seriously Cavell's approach to genre. And then um, using Cavell's approach to think about the history of movie genres generally, which is something that he kind of avoided or put to the side. And he was thinking about these kind of historical genres, but he didn't have much really to say about the way in which remarriage comedies in the 30s and 40s were connected or connecting to um, romantic comedies in the 80s and 90s, for example. Mm -hmm. that, 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 um, and, and it seemed to me that there was lots of work to do there. Um, and then, the, but there was a kind of a media problem with The Sopranos, which I was quite interested in, became more and more interested in, which was, um, I had read early on in thinking about The Sopranos a piece by Robert Warshaw called The Gangster as Tragic Hero, which is, it's, from, it's an essay from 1948, it's, to my mind, one of the greatest pieces of film criticism ever written. It's like five pages. Everyone should read it. I recommend it to everyone listening mm -hmm. to All track right. it down and listen to it. it. I mean, watch or read it, whatever medium we're in. Uh, it, um, and there he describes, um, he describes the story of these 1930s gangster movies, Jimmy Cagney movies, um, the original Scarface, and so on. And um, his description is of the gangster as the man of action and the, um, the man who knows what he wants and gets it. Mm -hmm. Very simple story in this way. And I had come to The Sopranos with this thought why is it that the gangster is, it's a gangster story, and it's the first really sustained, interesting depiction of therapy in TV or movies that I know? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> that seemed to me to require a kind of explanation. That uh -huh. why, <laughs> and I think the more that you think about those early gangster movies, the more surprising it is that that figure historically should turn out to be like the first one in therapy of all of the movie types. Um, and so I became kind of obsessed with that question. It's like, how is it that we moved from this story of like the man of action who's like violently taking what he desires to this apparently neurotic figure who's like wracked with self-doubt can sit on the couch for uh, hours a week. And, um, when I think of those early gangster yeah. characters, your description's apt. Um, yeah. The thing I just think is confident, right? Early depictions of Al Capone is this super confident, um, you're not going to cross me, I'm going to win no matter what kind of guy. 
Um, yeah, no, there, it's... Um, so it is interesting, because Tony Soprano was just a, you know, he was afraid of his own shadow half the time, you know. Just, yeah, it's very, it, it is, it's, a, it's an exciting, I, I, was, I got very interested in it once it occurred to me as a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, because originally I had, I had been kind of just interested in this, this question about, like, why therapy is hard to show on film generally, which I think is an interesting question, too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that uh, either therapy doesn't work and it's kind of like a joke, where you have, like, mm-hmm. the Woody Allen character who, like, the whole point is he stays exactly the same, he's in therapy forever, and it never changes. Um, or you do have a kind of change, but it, um, it works like magic in a way. It's not actually therapy, yeah. but it, there's this kind of like... So just to yeah. elaborate on both of those, yeah, yeah. right, the, the Bob Newhart show, the original, you know, he's right. the, yeah, the, yeah. the doctor. Right, and it's just the same, you know, Mr. Carlin's there, and these people never get better, and they say the same kinds of things. <laughs> yes, exactly. and, um, Yeah, and there's, there's no improvement. And then other depictions on television... Um, I could think of, of several shows where um, the one of the main characters is having trouble in the bedroom. Um, this happened on Mad About You, and then the, the yeah. sequel to Three's Company, which is, I think, was Three's a Crowd, Three's right? Three's a Crowd, of course. You know, John Ritter's character, and he's like, yeah. well, I've got to go to the therapist, and they go in there, and, and then they say one thing like, boy, you know, I'm, I'm really upset about my relationship with my father, and then... Oh, that's why. And then, exactly. Yeah, and then you get this payoff, and then they're, they're gone, and yeah, it's like magic. My favorite moment of this, actually, is in uh, Being John Malkovich, mm. in which the Cameron Diaz character has this monkey in a cage. I can't remember all the details exactly, so uh, somebody out there will be upset that I'm describing <laughs> this, but um, there's a moment in the movie in which... Um, the monkey has a flashback to the trauma of having been captured. And yeah. it works like the, the magic therapy moment, where it's like, all of a sudden, you remember the trauma, <clears throat> the scales fall from your eyes, and you're immediately yeah. able to deal with it. That, to me, was always like the funniest version of that thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, um, but you see it all the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, so the, the, in the Sopranos, then it became, so, so then I was struck by the gap between those two. It's like, Mm -hmm. how do we get there? And then I started to think about the gangster movies in the 1970s, starting with The Godfather and the part two, um, Mean Streets, um, and then Goodfellas, which if you know Goodfellas and you watch The Sopranos at all, you know it. The Sopranos was really like a remake. Well, not no. It was it's a sequel in a sense. It's a, a spiritual sequel to Goodfellas. Mm-hmm. Um, Lorraine Bracco, who plays Jennifer Melfi, right. was the wife. Karen. Yeah. Um, and. Uh, you know, you have Paulie Walnuts, the actor who played that, was the, he's the guy in Goodfellas who um, t- 
takes the mailman and shoves his head in the oven early mm-hmm. on. Uh, anyway, there's a, a ton of right. those kinds of connections. When they pulled off the big heist and they, they meet in the bar and there's all those guys there, you could just say Sopranos, Sopranos, Sopranos. Several Ex- of the, the good fellas. Yes, exactly. Uh, <clears throat> big Pussy, the... Um, <clears throat> who was a character in the first two seasons of The Sopranos, is in Goodfellas for a second and a half, pulling a a rack of um, stolen fur coats back into a restaurant when they're doing the bust out early on in Goodfellas. Oh, I noticed that. Great. Uh, And most striking, you have Goodfellas ends very famously with Henry Hill, the main character, in exile in Arizona, in the suburbs, um, no longer living the gangster life. And he's wearing a robe, and he comes out of his suburban house, and he goes and he picks up the newspaper, and he turns around and he walks back in, and he slams the door on your face, and there's one more shot, but that's basically the end of the movie. And every season of The Sopranos opens, there's a scene always in the first episode of every season of Sopranos, in which Tony's wearing a bathrobe, he comes out of his suburban house, he walks down the driveway, he picks up the newspaper, and he turns oh, it and back in. They do it every season. And it's, um, so I became kind of very obsessed with the connections there. And those 70s movies all have gangsters who are not the men of action in any straightforward way. Mm-hmm. Michael Corleone is in contrast with Sonny. So Sonny is the hothead psychotic. Mm-hmm. And Michael okay. is the apparently thoughtful one who's like mm-hmm. holding things together and rationalizing. Uh, <clears throat> you have that dynamic with... Um, uh, <clears throat> in Mean Streets with the Harvey Keitel character Mm -hmm. and the Robert De Niro character. And in Goodfellas, it's Henry, whose voice you're hearing, who's describing everything that's happening, and Tommy, the Joe Pesci character, and Jimmy, the Robert De Niro character. And, um, you know, when you watch Goodfellas, it's quite striking. You get to the end of it, and you realize Henry thinks he's never killed him. Mm-hmm. And there's a sense in which he's right. All he's done is like provide the shovel and driven the truck to dump the body, <clears throat> right? Mm-hmm. And he locked the door while they were <clears throat> kicking somebody to death in his bar. He didn't kill them, but right. So you have this kind of like weird thing that's happening in these '70s movies. And then once I started thinking in that direction, then it, the therapy thing sort of opened up for me in The Sopranos. Oh, in fact, they're taking what was already happening in these movies and pressing it to a kind of extreme. Mm -hmm. And the show became very conscious of it. They make it explicit in the final season that what's happening in the therapy for Tony is he's a psychotic who's pretending to be a neurotic. And that he's, in fact, learning how to be a better gangster. He's not... (laughs) trying to be a better person. Mm -hmm. Um, And that what he's doing in therapy is able to, he's learning how to rationalize what he does in a way that allows him to continue to do it. What do you find most philosophically interesting about the genre? 
Well, it's a way for all of us to think about the relation between um, action and violence, agency and violence, how much, how it, whether it's possible to have contemporary agency that is not people acting just for themselves and uh, hurting others. That's the, the, the gangster, I think, is a, a kind of a locus of anxiety around that kind of, um, those issues. Um, and, and, you know, so I think in the early ones, the sort of 1930s, Scarface, Public Enemy, in those ones, the, the, the real anxiety on the table is, is it possible to act in modern life in a way that's not sadistic? And is there a way of being successful that's not hurting others and taking pleasure in it for the sake of taking pleasure and hurting? Um, and then when you get to the 1970s ones, you get this much more, well, you get a different worry. It's related, but, um, and it's one that's still, I mean, the, the other one is super live for us too, but the, the, the 70s one I think is, to me, really, what I find most interesting about every uh, about all of this, which is um, in these seventies ones, and with the Sopran the Sopranos is kind of a culmination of this in various ways. Although it also is doing a version of the thirties thing too. But um, in these seventies ones, you have this apparently reflective gangster uh, who's not the psychotic one on its face. Mm -hmm. He's not the one who takes pleasure in violence for the violence sake, at least on its face. Do, do you think Michael Corleone's sort of the paradigm yeah. of this? Yes, exactly. Almost, you know, doesn't want to be there and... Supposedly. Supposedly. Right? I mean, it's right, so this is... The, <laughs> Early you, on you get that. The, this right? is, yeah. it, well, it, it, but there, and there is this kind of sense of like, what's happening is he's able to rationalize what's happening in a way that allows it to happen. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that, that becomes very explicit, I think, as the Godfather movies move on. I mean, it happens in both, the first and the second. Um, there were just two, right? We don't, we don't acknowledge... I, I'll, I, well, this, you'll have to have me come back on to defend Godfather 3. <laughs> I haven't watched in a while. I do think... I haven't either. But... It's not great. Uh, and um, there are... There are decisions that were made at various levels that I think it's not on the par with the first two, but it is interesting, mm -hmm. I think. Um, there are interesting things happening in it. And, uh, and the Pacino performance is, you know, really memorable. I, I mean, people still think of it as part of that performance generally. Mm -hmm. Just when yeah. I thought I was out, they pull me back in. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> But so yeah, this the, the the Michael Corleone, Henry Hill, Tony Soprano figure is someone who's um, enabling violence by distancing himself from it through thinking, mm -hmm. oh, and that to me I think is a very contemporary worry because I think the worry that's at stake there, the kind of anxiety is, um, I don't think of myself as successful and um, active and 
doing things in the world. I'm passive. And all the bad stuff that's happening in the world is happening despite me. I think that's a very contemporary thought. And that thought, the, the thing that the gangster movie, as it were, makes explicit for you is that's a way of distancing yourself from the way in which you're participating in all kinds mm -hmm. of bad things that are happening. That, to think of yourself as passive and to think of yourself as not being a part of it is often a way that you're enabling it to happen. I think that's what we see in gangster movies. So I'm very interested, I think of philosophy of movies in particular as a kind of subset of philosophy of action. And, oh, um, and the gangster to me is like the kind of uh, central set of texts if you're thinking about uh, philosophy of action from this point of view, I think. There's all kinds of contemporary issues about the nature of action now in the present. So. Great. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks so much for, for talking to us. Thanks yeah. for having me. Really, yeah, really nice fun. having you here. Yeah, super fun. Lots of fun. All right, take care. Yeah. <laughs>
may have affected the reviews of the movie, that people knew the story of Queen. And they kind of, like you mentioned, jumbled some things around on a t- in the timeline. And I think probably doing so told a, given the time frame that they had to work with and the events that they had to work with, and they're making a film, <laughs> uh, it was probably more powerful in that order, mm-hmm. even though that wasn't the correct order. Right, right, um, right. And so, you know, some people are ticked off about that, but I just, I, I don't know, it's a movie. Mm-hmm. Do, do, is, is there some sense in which we owe it, biopics owe it to uh, a person, particularly if that person is no longer alive, to tell their story 100% accurately? Yeah, this is interesting because it raises an issue that you raised earlier in the episode, right? So you were talking about gangster films and, Mm -hmm. you know, we get a little farther away from Al Capone and he becomes this kind of weird hero, Mm anti-hero sort of guy, but, um, you know, Whitey Bulger is not. Yeah, yeah, no one gives a darn if you make Vesuvius and none of it's accurate. Right. right? In fact, you know, you you could make Vesuvius and say, you know, instead of it being a volcano... You could make it a flood and an earthquake followed by a tsunami, and nobody would care, right? <laughs> but um, Freddie Mercury's passing is still pretty recent, and mm-hmm. so uh, you know a lot of the people that might be going to see this are maybe people um, like me who were emotionally invested in his life while it was occurring, mm-hmm. um, and so yeah, they're they're maybe a, a harder sell for some of those people. Um, that said, I don't know any fans of the band that haven't just raved about it. Oh, good. And good. and the band's raving about it, right? The uh, Brian May and uh, John Deacon and Roger Taylor um, all loved it, right? And Great. In particular, you know, the performances, the portrayal of them. So, I thought some of the, uh, I thought that Freddie Mercury's love life was fascinating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've never heard a story exactly like that. Yeah, the Mary Austin story is really mm-hmm. interesting. There's a real deep love there and yeah, maybe not don't give too many details because yeah, yeah. it's so interesting. I yeah. probably shouldn't be spoiled. Right. <laughs> I don't want to say that's the most interesting part of it because that would be to do the sort of thing that some of the early critics of the film when it was still in production were worried about that it like, you know, they were worried that it was going to focus on his his straight relationship at the expense of the gay relationships, and they certainly don't do that. And those are you know um, really well done and fantastic. Mm-hmm. Also, um, great Easter egg in there um, with Mike Myers, um, and maybe not wanting to say too much more than that, other than you know his connection to um, the song Bohemian Rhapsody, you know from Wayne's World. Yeah. is nicely juxtaposed to the character he plays. Well, let me tell you, if you if you hadn't told me that he was playing that character, I wouldn't have known it. Mm-hmm. So uh, so it is. It's a serious Easter egg. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, you have to be a skilled Easter egg hunter to find that one. Yeah. All right. Are, are we liking anything else this week? Well, I mean, I thought that's the main thing. We've been, uh, we finished up the season of um, Room 104, mm-hmm. and that was solid, strong all the way through. Yeah, I'm looking forward to a third season. I haven't looked to see if they've renewed it, but mm-hmm. I... It made its way to the Sunday night lineup, so I suspect it's, um, yeah, it was Friday, the first season, um, doing just fine. And then we've been watching The Good Place still, and season three's um, a lot of fun. Don't know how I feel about it compared to the the previous seasons, um, and that's not meant to suggest that I'm not thinking highly. I want to see the whole, the whole package, I think, before 
I draw a conclusion. Now it's time for our listener musing section. Um, this musing comes from Michelle, who we referred to um, in our episode last week, right? She had made a point about the haunting of Hill House being a lot like um, American Horror Story's first season, Murder House. Um, and so she wrote in to, to um, clarify her position a little bit, um, add some details, and then also um, has a, a listener musing on a different topic. So this is sort of a twofer, but not in the Rosabelle Edney sense, where we, we have two distinct people. It's uh, Michelle doing double duty, and so we're, we're thankful that she wrote us. So, Rach, what, what does Michelle have to say? Yeah, so we'll start with the, the point she makes about the similarities between The Haunting of Hill House and the first season of AHS. She says, thanks for, my, thanks for the mention of my thoughts on Hill House. I wanted to clarify the parallels I drew when I made the comment that it was basically season one of AHS. First, it's a classic haunted house story where a family is plagued by those who came before. Not enough to draw a clear line, but wait, there's more. Second, the spirits who die in the house are trapped there, and this has gone on through several generations, with ghosts specifically trying to get more people trapped there. Third, we see characters specifically choosing to die in the house to be trapped with deceased loved ones. Fourth, it all started with a crazy couple from the Roaring Twenties. I think the four gets me there, but maybe not. I would also say that Hill House was just as well done as AHS, if not more so in terms of both content and construct. Yeah, so before we get on to the next part, um, mm-hmm. I just completely agree. Really, sure. really good insights. Yeah, um, I definitely see the similarities there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's nice. Okay, so then she moves on to her philosophical musing. She says, as for philosophical musing, would you say that there's anything in pop culture that directly addresses the value of skepticism in terms of real-world application? Specifically, does anyone try to answer the question of why we should care, what we should do about the fact that we can never really know whether we're all brains and vats? Maybe besides, besides maybe The Matrix, which argues the idea that it's better to know the truth and be in tough surroundings than be blissfully ignorant, does any other movie or show give a reason as to why we should be concerned if we can't know or do anything about it? Or what should we do about it if we could know? Yeah, so that's good. I think there, there's a, a handful of good examples um, I mean, you're right to point out the, the bit from The Matrix, because I, I think the examples I'm going to cite all sort of do that, that same sort of thing, right? It's, it's the moral that comes up over and over, which is, you know, the, the truth is the most important thing. So um, last week we mentioned, or two weeks ago, rather, we mentioned um, The Truman Show, right? And I think that the final scenes of that are a testament to exactly what you're talking to, right? So... In, in Truman's experience there, right, they, there's lots of things that aren't real. Um, and, you know, he's got this phobia of water and he's willing to brave what he used to believe is the ocean and knows is not the ocean now, but is a very dangerous bit of water. Just the same, um, just to get at the truth, right? Um, willing to leave everything he knows behind, friends and, and family. And then, you know, when, when he does this, he gets this kind of payoff, right? He gets to meet with the mastermind, of all of it and, um, you know, have all of his questions answered. So it's almost like, you know, meeting God or something. Um, and then I think we also see this in Vanilla Sky, right, where it, you know, towards the end of the movie, it's sort of revealed to be, um, you know, Tom Cruise's characters in a skeptical scenario, um, and he's given the choice to stay in or, or to 
exit it. Sort of very much um, like Robert Nozick's experience machine, thought experiment, only kind of in reverse. Um, not, you know, you can go in, but it's not truthful, but rather you're in one and you can, you can leave it, but it's perhaps not going to be as good as the life we've created here, right? And so, um, again, you know, you, you see the, the hero. Um, I don't like to use the term hero with Tom Cruise. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the guy that everyone else thinks is the hero. Um, choosing truth, right? That, that truth is more valuable than positive experiences is, is sort of the moral that yeah. you get there as well. I'm thinking of a similar point to the one we were talking about last week with Sisyphus, though. I mean, um, I wonder if one way of interpreting the question is, like, look, given that we're, or one of the questions that she asked, uh, given that, okay, let's, let's, all, let's all agree that we might be brains and vats and we can't rule that out. Uh, more often than not, so in these cases, they find their way, like they find out that they're mm-hmm. a brain in a vat. And it's, the Hollywood can't not do that, right? Yeah, you you yeah. are always, you know, you're, if you're a brain in a vat in Hollywood, you're going to find out. But in the real world, kind of by hypothesis, we're never going to find out. It's the kind of thing we wouldn't be able to rule out. Uh, overwhelmingly likely, we're not going to know. So I wonder, one way of interpreting the question is like, um, is there any value in contemplating these skeptical hypotheses given that we're never going to find out? And I, and I, I had some thoughts on that, which is, which are that, um, I, I think that most people don't exercise very much epistemic humility, mm-hmm. meaning most people will just take their general sense of certainty as if it is certainty. Right. And we can distinguish between a sensation of certainty and truly knowing something without beyond any doubt mm-hmm. right um and so i th- i think it's i think that reflecting on skepticism whether ever, we're ever going to find out whether we're brains and vats or not may be pragmatically justified insofar as it encourages some intellectual humility mm-hmm. yeah i agree and the the line that i've always taken with the students is it's a sort of a good check on our epistemic practices mm-hmm. right and that doesn't just have to apply to professional epistemologists and no, I mean, people yeah. that, that work on issues like that <laughs> everybody should kind of wonder what they're assuming what they're taking for granted what um i like the the certainty point because i've been in you know at least a thousand conversations with people that you can just tell how certain they feel when I know for a fact that they're wrong. Mm-hmm. And I've been that certain person. Sure. And later have. come to, yeah. it's like, oh man, I was positive. Yeah. That was the case. Yeah. And, and I, then... I bought a cake to celebrate Hillary Clinton winning the election. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Yeah. That, that cake didn't even taste good. All right. Well, Michelle, um, Thank you very much for um, your thoughts and comments. And um, as a a personal side note, um, congratulations. All right. Well, that's a wrap, folks. Episode 11 is in the can. And once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Rates, what do we have on tap for next week? Well, we're planning something that we hope will be pretty fun. It's a Christmas episode. So uh, our typical... Episodes, as you all know, drop on Tuesdays, but of course, next Tuesday is Christmas. We do. We wanted to do an episode that week, but uh, we're gonna we're gonna drop it Monday at the latest, maybe even on Sunday, possibly uh, Sunday, so that you have a little Christmas cheer and it should be family friendly. Uh, to, something fun to listen to uh, philosophically. 
Yeah, it's it's, kiddos. it's gonna take you back to the the Christmas days of yore, where the whole family gathers around the podcast device <laughs> and, and listens together on Christmas Eve while the, the chestnuts roast on the fire and whatnot. Should be fun. We hope. All right. Thanks for listening. Bye.